everyone, and uh, thank you very much for joining us today. Uh, we are waiting for our first speaker to join. Meanwhile, um, thank you very much for Mr. Khalid Al Malik for um, carrying out this and holding holding this uh, event. Uh, hopefully, it will be very fruitful for all our attendees. Uh, the program will um, ensure be of one um, quick um, word by uh, BCH um, head, uh, Mr. Abshok, Dr. Abshok, for like 15 minutes. Uh, then a quick introductory by Dr. Rehab, the media office ahead. Uh, we have, uh, after that, one hour of a speech and a lecture by Mr. Khalid and Malik. Then we'll go for breakout rooms for like 10 minutes. We'll come back for discussion of the cases. Hopefully you'll find it a very uh, fruitful day and you'll enjoy it. The first thing will be um, a quick talk and a welcome by Dr. Ahmed Abshok. We will be waiting for him. Thank you. Okay, thank you, Boran, and welcome everyone. Good evening for you, and um, welcome to the BSAP uh, CH uh, platform. Um, for, uh, for those who don't know me, I'm Ahmed, and I'm a consultant pediatrician, and I work in London, and I'm the president of the uh, BSAP CH. Uh, welcome to one of our series, which is called Emergency Pediatrics. So we hold lots of educational activities in this CH. One of them is the pediatric emergencies. We did uh, metabolic emergencies in pediatrics before, and there will be more to come in the future. So it's all about you come and listen to a lecture from expert, go on and have some kind of workshops and small group discussions based around scenarios and cases and come back to discuss it. Uh, I hope that you are going to enjoy the day. For those who are members, so you will receive regular emails from us about different kinds of activities. Those who are not members yet, I really uh, encourage you to be part of these organizations because we really need to get together, united, doing uh, more work than what we are doing now. Um, um, uh, for those uh, who are not members, so Rehab is going to share with you later our um, email and uh, website, so you can access all our educational activities from that website. Um, I hope that you are going to enjoy the evening and I will looking very much to see you in our future educational uh, activities in the future. Thank you very much. Assalamu alaikum and good evening. Sincere welcomes to all of you. And I'm very glad to be here today and thank you for attending with us. We hope you find this session interesting and beneficial. My name is Rehab and I'm one of the BSAPCH members. And as uh, 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 Dr. Ahmed said, this is our third session of our topics in pediatric emergency series. We had two previous sessions so far, uh, and they're both are available on our YouTube um, channel, website, and Facebook page. However, today's uh, session will not be shared for the sensitivity of the content. So please, we kindly request that you neither record the session nor take screenshots, please. Uh, okay, so we will start with a pre-course quick MCQs uh, um, warm-up. 
And then our main session will be uh, a 45 main talk followed by 10 minutes for questions. For questions, please write them, write them down in the chat box and one of our moderators will read them out for Mr. Almanik. Then there will be a 10 minutes break. And after that, we will distribute everybody into four break rooms with a moderator for 10 minutes during which a scenario will be given to you as a group and will be discussed with the supervision organization of the group moderator. After the 10 minutes, which will be mainly brainstorming, everybody will come back to the main room and the four cases will be discussed by Dr. Al-Malik. And then at the end, we will have 10 minutes for filling up feedback uh, forms and a few announcements for our next upcoming event. So in summary, in this main session, uh, it will be mute for all, uh, just for the sake of organization because of the huge number. But in the break rooms, uh, it will be unmute for all, participate and interact. Uh, so now, please allow me to introduce our team for today. So uh, the session moderator, Dr. Boran, do you want to introduce yourself? Uh, welcome again, everyone. My name is Boran Khalifa. Currently, I'm a pediatric ST4 trainee at West Yorkshire. I will be your, your moderator for the day. Thank you. Okay, thanks, Boran. Uh, in the break rooms, Khaled? Khaled, are you there? Okay, maybe Khaled is having some technical issues. Rehab, Rehab Mahdi? Yeah, uh, I'm Rehai, I'm Rehab Mahdi. I'm one of the um, neonatal registrar in Samiri Hospital, Manchester. I will be moderating room three today. Thank you, Rehab. Sami? Hi, everyone. Uh, I'm happy to be uh, one of the moderators today. Uh, and thank you, PSAPCH, for giving me this opportunity to be one of the moderators. Um, currently now, uh, I'm a senior registrar in Slaywo Hospital in Ireland. Thank you. Thanks, Sami. Mona? Hello, everyone. I'm so glad to be part of the team today. I'll be moderating one of the uh, break rooms. My name is Muna Awad Karim Omar. I'm working as pediatric specialist at Community Pediatric at Royal Aberdeen Children's Hospital. Thanks, Muna. Um, organizer of this series, Sama. Uh, very useful to you and relevant to your practice, one of the pediatric emergency session. I'm Dr. Mali. I'm a consultant pediatrician in Ireland, Mercy University Hospital in Cork. Thank you very much. And the IT will be myself and Osama. So uh, let's now go for the uh, three course MCQs. So we will share the questions with you and then the, uh, sorry, we'll share the scenarios and then the questions will pop up as uh, poll questions. So uh, please submit your questions through the poll. And up until you um, bring on your MCQs, can I just introduce to the, um, audiences. So our main speaker today, Dr. Khalid Al-Malik, who is one of the senior consultants in pediatric surgery working in Leicester, which is somewhere in the Midland of the UK. Um, 
Dr. Khaled has got a, an enormous experience in pediatric surgery and you will see it today. Uh, I'm not going to speak on his behalf, but I will leave it when it comes to him, then he can introduce himself. So meanwhile, so let us go through the, um, the brief course questions. Thanks, Ahmed, for the introduction. Moran is going to introduce him again before his talk. Thank you. <laughs> um, so let's... Um... Can you see, can everybody see the first question? Can you see the first question? Can somebody yes, yes. say yes? Yes, yes. Okay. Um, so we have a one week old baby with vomiting. Um, he's a healthy one week old term unit, presents with one day history of vomiting, lethargy and reduced urine output. The last tool was mixed with blood on examination. The unit appeared dehydrated. Capillary refill time four seconds, heart and lungs were normal. The abdomen was caphoid, soft and non-tender. Image of uh, vomiting and uh, X-ray abdomen included. Usama, can you share the poll? For some reason, I can't see it here. Um, uh, <clears throat> I cannot access it. I'll give you the post back. We have tried to. I try to uh, share the phone now, Rehab, if you can, because uh, I cannot access it. Mm. Yeah, I don't know. I can't access it as well. Maybe because of the huge number of the hosts. I think that's the reason because it's saying you're locked from another device. Anyway, so this okay, no problem. Yeah, okay, no problem. So if you want to um, um, have a look at the answers and put an answer and then uh, uh, Mr. Malik in his session, he will go through them. So the next most appropriate radiological test would be Doppler ultrasound of the superior mesentelic vessels, or is it a barium enema, or is it upper GI series or CT abdomen? The councils now they're saying in the chat box the same number three, upper GI series. Yeah, if you can put them in the chat box, please. Yes. Any more answers? Yes. Three, three. Most of the answers are upper GI series, and we have barium enema. Okay. Some are saying CT abdomen. Most are saying upper GI series. Okay. So let's go to the next question. 14-year-old girl with abdominal pain and vomiting. This is a 14-year-old girl presents with a six hour history of severe colicky central abdominal pain. She describes being tired at school and passing modern colored stools in the past. She previously had similar episodes of intermittent pain that were severe and resolved spontaneously. On examination, she appeared pale, heart rate 98 per minute and distinctive, distinctive pigmented melanotic spots of lips. And the photo is included, buccal mucosa and palms. Heart and lungs were normal. 
abdomen myelin standard. So the most likely diagnosis is mesenteric melanoma of the small intestine, ileocolic intersusception, mitigate volvulus, Post-Gerhardt syndrome, or lahenix choline perpora. Okay, I can see most of the answers are for Post-Gerhardt syndrome. Almost all agreeing on that. Okay. Yeah, universal four. Okay. Shall we go to the next question? Okay, everybody's saying four. Brilliant. The Next question, a five-week-old baby with vomiting, a five-week-old term bottle-fed infant presents with two-day history of non-bilious vomiting. This is now occurring after every feeding. The infant does not appear to be septic. The differential di diagnosis of non-bilious vomiting at this age includes uh, overfeeding, gastroesophageal reflux, pyloric stenosis, or congenital adrenal hyperplasia, or all of the above. Okay, all of the above. Uh, we've got pyloric stenosis, all of the above. Pyloric stenosis. So the answers are between all of the above and pyloric stenosis. Okay. Most are agreeing on five, all the above. Okay, good. Um, a five-year-old boy struck by a car. So this is a five-year-old pedestrian was struck by a car traveling at 25 miles per hour. He was thrown into the pavement, but did not strike his head. He's alert and responsive, heart rate 110, blood pressure 110 over 75, and respiratory rate 22. No evidence of facial or head injuries. He had mild diffuse tenderness over his upper abdomen. So here we want the true question, uh, the true answer. Which of the following is true? One abdominal trauma in children is principally a penetrating trauma. Two, the majority of blunt splenic injuries are managed uh, conservatively. Three, the investigation of choice for assessing a child with significant abdominal trauma is an ultrasound scan of the abdomen. Four, the most commonly injured organ in the abdominal cavity is the pancreas. The circulating blood volume of a child is 40 ml per kg. No voice, somebody's saying can't hear me. Can everybody hear me? Yes. We can hear you. Yes. So the answers are between three, two. Two is the majority of blunt splenic injuries are managed conservatively. Three, the investigation of choice for assessing a child's significant ultrasound is a scan. Two again. So most of the answer, Mr. Al-Malik, is between two and three. Okay, again, two, three. Okay, good. So let's go to the last question. A three-year-old with rectal prolapse. So this is a three-year-old boy presents with three hours history of rectal prolapse while sitting in the toilet. The child's parents are very anxious but the boy appears comfortable and doesn't complain of pain. The following is not true regarding rectal prolapse. So we are looking for the false answer here, okay? One, idiopathic constipation is, of, um, is one of the leading causes. Manual reduction is usually successful in the acute phase. Management in children involves screening for cystic fibrosis. 
definitive treatment requires surgical intervention in all cases. It may occur secondary to, to juvenile polyp. Three, four, definitive treatment requires surgical intervention. Four, there were a few answers, three in the beginning and few fives, but the majority are saying four, which is definitive treatment requires surgical intervention in all cases. Okay, most of the questions, most of the answers are right. Okay, so that was the warm-up pre-session um, questions. I will stop sharing now. Um, Mr. Al-Malik, if you want to share your slides, and Boran, if you want to go ahead and uh, introduce Mr. Al-Malik again, please. Thank you. Uh, thank you, Rahab. Good afternoon again, everyone. Um, a warm welcome to everyone, and thank you for joining us today. I hope you find this session enormously exciting and uh, useful. It's my pleasure to introduce our speaker for the day, Mr. Khalid Al-Malik. Mr. Khalid is a consultant pediatric surgeon based in the East Midlands. He has graduated from the University of Khartoum in mid-1990s. Uh, Mr. Khalid completed his training in the Northern Journey with a special interest in oncology. Our speaker has many publications in his field uh, in many reputable journals with around 180 citations. He has, he has also written few chapters in his field. Mr. Khalid's initial talk will be for 45 minutes. Uh, this will be followed by 10 minutes for your questions. Please write them down in the chat and we will go through them at the end of his talk. Please welcome uh, Dr. Khalid and Malik with me. And Dr. Khalid, the floor is yours now. Thank you. Uh, okay, Bismillah ar-Rahman ar-Rahim. Thank you. Thank you, BSAPCH, for this kind invitation. Uh, it's given me great pleasure to be here today. And I have to admit, I had links with this uh, society from a very long time ago uh, when my uncle had a medic and uh, Dr. Um, Ahmed Ibrahim Mukhtar, Rahimullah. They were the founders of this society many years ago, and I used to come and attend some of the meetings. Um, so I, I'm very pleased to be uh, sharing this with the young generation. Uh, before I start the session, I, I'm sure you will all appreciate that we should uh, and uh, back to the session, I, <clears throat> as I said, I really appreciated the invitation, but I found it extremely difficult, to be honest, how to gauge this session. Because um, emergencies in surgery is, well, pediatric surgery is a very funny specialty because it's, there are many surgical disciplines and pediatric surgery is the only discipline that is based on age. All surgical disciplines are either based on an organ, a system, or a technique, like a bariatric surgery, or, or a urologist, or a cardiac surgeon, or so forth. We are the only group of surgeons who operate from, from zero to 16. Yeah. Okay, so, so essentially, um, anything can become an emergency. I mean, a vascular axis can become an emergency if a child on PN run out of access. 
and, and that can be an emergency in itself. So I chose, a, I selected a number of scenarios and I hope you find them useful. Some including neonates and some are childhood diseases. So going back to the, going back to the MCQs, this first, uh, if you, uh, you are, you're absolutely right, it's an GI contrast study. And whenever you face with a baby, especially in the first uh, week of life who has bilious vomiting, and if there's only one message I would like to ensure everybody goes home aware of it is bilious vomiting is green, yeah? And I know of a trainee many years ago who sent a questionnaire to GPs giving them a spectrum of colors between yellow and orange and green and asking them what do, which one do you think is, is, is bile? I can tell you there is a confusion and certainly there's a confusion in the general public. All these mothers, they say, the child vomited bile and then it says, okay, what color is it? And then you realize it's not bile because bile is green and it's by definition, we have to assume this is obstruction unless proven otherwise. So it is a surgical emergency. This is our top surgical emergency is a neonate with a bilious vomiting, which I will come to in more detail in a minute. Um, and especially in a child who's got a scaphoid abdomen, then it's obstruction. It is a very proximal obstruction. This is obstruction tend to give you abdominal distension. So this is a very high obstruction. And, and a child, and if a child starts to pass blood per rectum, that's a very ominous sign as well. So this is something, sometimes we elect to go to theater even without doing any test if we feel it is uh, time critical. And it is, can be a very time critical procedure. The second MCQ was, was the Spetsjäger, and, and you're absolutely right. And melanoma, extremely rare in children, and extremely rare to metastasize to the bowel. Alicolic interception is typically seen in the small babies. And mid-gut volvulus is, is the emergency we talked about earlier, and we'll touch on it again. Spetsjäger, it's, it's, um, it's an autosomal dominant disease. It's a pre-malignant. I mean, the polyps themselves, they can be benign and they're hamartomatous polyp, which are benign by definition, and they can cause an intersusception. And interception, which is classically, is in the small bowel. Um, Henoctional line purpura, as we all know, you know it far better than mesovasculitis. And it can give you a rash on your skin, on extensor surfaces, and it can give you submucous hemorrhages and can give you intersusception. Those ones we tend to try not to operate on them and manage medically. And we had an interception secondary to Henoxoma and Perpura in the past where we aggressively, the, the pediatrician aggressively treated and they had to add steroids and so forth and resolved it because the last thing is to give that child a lapotomy because those interceptions won't be amenable to air enema reduction as you appreciate it, as we will discuss in a minute as well. Going to the next scenario, this is, is all of the above, as you correctly said. Um, overfeeding is very common in a bottle-fed child. And, uh, and what you need to do is to assess how much milk is given, and you can work out if the baby is overfed. Reflux is very common. All babies pass it, and it's a small amount. And, and they get better with time. Uh, especially when you wean them and introduce them in solid food and when they start to sit up and walk around, things will favor going south and north. 
pallaris stenosis, it is, the, it is the classic example of, of this baby. Uh, congenital adrenal hyperplasia, it is one of those scenarios where you can have uh, sodium losing entropy uh, or, or um, and, then, and then you lose uh, loss of sodium, you get into sodium losing crisis, rather, that's more accurate term. And, and it's one of those rare scenarios where you have vomiting and you have hyperkalemia. So all, all, are, all are correct. And, and this is trauma. And trauma, as we know, the majority of abdominal trauma in children, it is blood. Whether a child fall from a height or hit by a car, uh, stab wounds, not common, um, neither in Sudan nor in the UK, maybe in America might be different or South Africa. And the majority of abdominal trauma are manic conservatively. Uh, in the past, people used to take the spleen out, as you're all familiar, losing the spleen, especially under the age of five, it puts you at the risk of what we call an OPSI, which is an overwhelming post-splenectomy infection. Mainly, um, mainly it would be things like hemophilus influenzae and, and mycelium meningitis. And certainly if somebody loses the spleen, they have to be fully vaccinated. And ideally, it should be an antibiotic for life. Nobody takes antibiotics for life. It should be at least on the first five years where the OPSI risk is high. Uh, the investigation of choice for trauma, it is a, a single contrast CT. That's the, that's the ideal investigation of choice. Where you give IV contrast, you don't need to give oral because with the trauma, most likely the child will vomit and which can aggravate things as well, a risk of aspiration. The most commonly injured solid organ, well, the solid organs are the most likely to be injured. And classically, the typical one is the spleen followed by the liver and the kidneys. The pancreas, it's, as we say in surgery, God has created the pancreas and put it well behind so the surgeon and everybody can avoid touching it and damaging it. And the circulating blood volume of a child is 80 mil per kilogram, um, as we all uh, agree. Rectal prolapse is one of those scenarios that can become an emergency in the sense that they come to and it can be very distressing to families. The child usually is not in a great deal of distress, but the family are more distressed than the child himself. And, and in the Western world, the leading cause for prolapse would be constipation. Unlike in, 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 in low-income countries, the likely cause would be, would be a diarrhea disease you know, on, the, on the other spectrum. Manual reduction tends to be successful in the majority of cases, at least on the ones I've, I've had to deal with. Uh, and why should we screen for CF? Because it can be a rare presentation of CF. Maybe about 3% of CF patients present with rectal prolapse. We had series of rectal prolapse, which we published in the past. We screened them, none, none, none had CF, but they were small, small series. Most big series will quote, and this is about 3%. Um, as we said, the definitive treatment is, is usually manipulating the diet, controlling the constipation, and improving the technique, how people should sit and stop straining. Uh, the, the rectum looks more like, a, like a, uh, a straight tube initially, and then becomes more of an S shape, taking the concavity of the, of the sacrum, and that's which time improves and reduces the chance of prolapse. But we had cases where we had to operate because they were outside the classic small age group. 
Uh, and those can be quite difficult. And I don't want to go into the details of it, but they could be quite difficult and the surgery might not necessarily be successful. Any condition where there are numerous multiple operations, it means that there is no one correct operation or no perfect operation and everybody is doing their best to, to make it work. Juvenile polyps, hamartomatous polyp can be solitary, can be in the rectum, can give you prolapse. One of the very early cases I've seen when I was a trainee in London many years ago, is a little boy who came in his rectal prolapse and, and on the prolapse, there was a big polyp. So it was a very interesting opportunity for me to resect the polyp in the hernia and push the rectum back. And that was the end of the story for that uh, young boy. Okay, let's move on to the actual session. First, I would like to start with my rotation. I selected a number of conditions and my rotation is certainly one has to be, this is our really utmost top emergency in pediatric surgery. And, uh, and just to touch back a little bit on the embryology, just to refresh people's memories, as we know, the four gut, we have foregut, midgut, and hindgut. And as a principle, the foregut is supplied by the celiac uh, uh, trunk, the midgut supplied by the superior mesenteric artery, and the hindgut by the inferior mesenteric artery. Where does the foregut start? It's from the top, the second part of duodenum, and the midgut is from that part, second part didenum, all the way to distal part of the transverse colon. And then from there down to the rectum is the hindgut. And we need to appreciate this because, for example, if somebody comes with appendicitis and the pain is a midgut pain because the appendix is the midgut, initially visceral pain is difficult to localize and the child will initially complain of pain in the central abdomen. Periambalical. So, foregut pain tends to be referred to the epigastrium, midgut pain tends to refer to the periambalical region, and hindgut pain tends to be referred to the lower abdomen, which is the hypogastric region of suprapubic area. Once the pain becomes more localized, uh, somatic pain or visceral peritoneum touching uh, parietal peritoneum then you, the child will complain of right anaphosa pain, where the disease is. And I'm gonna to touch on appendicitis because that's another one, of, if not the commonest surgical emergency in childhood and in other practice as well. So in the early development, in the first trimester, the, the, the gut starts like a tube. And this tube grows so fast that eventually ends up outside the tummy. So what we call a physiological hernia. This physiological hernia, in simplicity, it will go back to the abdomen and rotate counterclockwise 270 degrees. By completing the 270 degrees, the bowel will sit in an arrangement where, if you look at the bottom picture, at the end of 12-week gestation, the cecum, or in fact, maybe better the next slide, and the axis of rotation is 270 degrees uh, along the SMA, superior mesenteric artery. And this is crucial to remember because if you have a twist, the twist will be along the artery as well. And that's why it compromises the valve. So what happens is, is the cecum ends up in the right anic fossa. And the, cec the ascending colon is fixed, retroperitoneum. The descending is fixed. The transverse colon is intraperitoneum is hanging. And the sigmoid is hanging. The rectum is part of it, intra and retroperitoneum. When it comes to the small bowel, the small bowel is uh, uh, interperitoneal and is mobile. The DJ, the duodenum and the DJ, that's the fixed point. 
the root of the mesa entry should be from the DJ flexor to the cecum. And this makes the uh, bowel, small bowel, all hanging in this broad mesentery and is less likely to twist on this. On the other hand, if you have a mild rotation, which is usually a rotation which is short of the 270, classically as a 180, then you end up with a cecum which is high, not in the right area possible, but rather high up in the right upper quadrant. And these bands, they tend to develop and they lean and obstruct the duodenum. The duodenum does not cross the midline. It doesn't go up to the right, to the left, and doesn't reach the level of the pylorus. This arrangement is very risky arrangement. We call it mal rotation. And as a result of this arrangement, the bowel can twist. This band's holding here called lats band. And, and on this narrow mesentery, the bowel can twist and tend to twist clockwise. And it can twist one twist, two twist, very tight twist, loose twist. You don't know till you go and operate. And it is one of the uh, most serious time critical emergencies. It happens classically in the neonatal period. So we say about 40% in the first week and up to 75% in the first month. So some people call it, in fact, volvulus neonatorum. So bilious vomiting is taken very seriously, but it can happen anytime. I might have my rotation. Any of the people listening to this lecture might have my rotation. It, people who follow music, there was, there's a group called the BGs. They don't sing anymore. Uh, two of the members have died. One of them died in his 50s in the year 2003 of malrotation volvulus, which is quite uh, extraordinary, but it can happen. And this series shows that nearly half of those patients in that series were adults who had malrotation volvulus. So if somebody has a malrotation, you'd be sitting like on a time bomb. And you never know when this can become an issue, but certainly we know it happens more in the younger generation, younger age group. And this, when I'm teaching, I tend to put this because this in pediatric surgery they can feature as MCQ questions because my rotation has association with almost everything. So when you have a child who had another condition, many, and then they start to vomit bile, then you think, oh, could this be my rotation? Are we overlooking it? Things like congenital diaphragmatic hernia, abdominal wall defect, eugenitresia, eugenitresia, mechanism of articulum, pyloric stenosis, Hirschsprung disease, anorectal malformation, esophageal tracheostomy fistula, biliary atresia, prone belly syndrome, cardiac anomalies, inversus, mesenteric. The atrial isomerism, I think you've discussed cardiac anomalies and I believe emergencies recently. And these conditions were you have a cardiac anomaly, which is a, has a known association with malnutrition, and now because cardiac conditions can be managed successfully, now these children, once they have the heart surgery corrected, they are screened for this malnutrition. And if it's being picked up, most literature will quote that elective repair of it is more favorable than dealing with an emergency scenario. And that will be my approach. Some people might disagree, and that's the nature of pediatric surgery. Uh, although you can justify why you're doing this and what is maybe the benefits of, maybe if the risk is low and the risk of complication from surgery is high, you might sometimes agree to manage things conservatively. War syndrome, this is, I tend to make it again a quiz for the trainees. It's, it's association of malrotation with, with intersusception and something sometimes that we sometimes see. When you're investigating a child with mild rotation, some people might do an ultrasound scan, it's not 100% reliable. 
And if you imagine the aorta is on the left-hand side of the abdomen, the cava, the inferior vena cava is on the right side. And the SMA and SMV, they're similar to it. So the vein is on the right, and like the cava, and the SMA is on the right. If they were to twist, then what happens is the vein can come on the front or can come, uh, or uh, the vein can come, sorry, on the front or can go to the left of the artery. That will be an abnormal, abnormal arrangement. The limitation of that, if things twist more than once, you can get a normal arrangement again, but it's been more than one twist. Sometimes you see what we call a whirlpool sign, that you can see a swirl in the vessel. And if you have a good radiolase, and I can tell you I had this scenario before where I had a small baby who didn't have a bilious vomiting because these babies, as many pediatric surgeons believe, these babies never read our books. They will always present in an atypical fashion in every single condition in pediatric surgery, I can tell you. And, and a child who was completely shocked and, uh, and had a, sorry. We had to give a blood transfusion and then had a very experienced radiologist who came and scanned him by the bedside and he said, I can see a whirlpool sign. And I took that baby straight to theater within less than an hour. And he did have a mid-cut bulbous and an ischemic cut. He was fine at the end. We resected some bowel and eventually he was okay. And he went home on full feet. So the gold standard is an upper GI contrast study. And I think for the sake of this lecture, we'll keep it that way. But this study itself has limitations. And I can tell you I had cases in the past where we had it, did that study and it was normal and still a child came with vulvaris. However, it is the best investigation of choice we have. And classically what we see when we do this study, as we said, the DJ should cross the midline. And we see these tiny circles in the spine, we call them owl eyes for the lay people, but for medical terms, we call them pedicles. And the bowel should, the DJ should cross the midline, should reach the owl eye and should stay to the left of it and should reach the level of the pylorus. Anything short of that is my rotation. With, if it reaches the midline, if it's on the right, that's all abnormal. And you might see classic obstruction or you might see classic corkscrew. If you see a corkscrew, then that's, that's, a, that's a vulvulus. Anybody can imagine that's, that doesn't look right. The operation was described by this gentleman, who's an American surgeon, in the year 1936, and he published in New England, New England Journal of Medicine. And since then, nearly a century, we do it exactly as he described it. First, we do a cut, and you, you might notice in small babies, other surgeons they do when they want to look for uh, a laparotomy, look into the abdomen, they do an, uh, a vertical incision from top to bottom. We don't do this in children. We do, uh, especially in babies, we do a right upper transverse incision. And this is because the abdomen of a baby is like that. It's more like a rectangle. Whereas the abdomen of an adult is more like a rectangle from top to bottom. So from a right upper transverse incision, we can access the entire abdomen. And we don't have to do the big vertical incision, which is, we call it the incision of indecision when people don't know what they're doing in other practice, but in children we have to do that. And, and, and it has a high risk of, of incisional hernia as well. So it's not something we tend to do. Uh, you divide the last bands, as we said, this on the side. We try to widen the mesentery and it's a very delicate procedure. And we try to make it so as it will 
stop this. This is all in an attempt to prevent it from twisting. And we put the bowel at the end in what we call non-rotation. The non-rotation uh, uh, position is that the small bowel remains on the right side and the cecum is in the left upper quadrant. And if you imagine, if you left the cecum in the left upper quadrant and the child subsequently developed appendicitis, nobody in the world will think that the child has appendicitis with pain in the left upper quadrant. So we take the appendix out at the end of the operation. And, and the last thing is we look, we exclude any intrinsic obstruction like a duodenatresia. As we said, there's no association with duodenatresia. So this is what we call a LADS operation. Is, and uh, when we untwisting it, we twist it counterclockwise. As we call it, we're reversing the hands of time. So it twists clockwise, we, we reverse it uh, anticlockwise. When you left with, when you open the tummy, if it's simple and straightforward and the bowel is viable, it's fantastic, you do that. If the bowel doesn't look right, you might elect, and this is most, more or less the standard of care in our unit, is that we don't resect the bowel, we do the lads, and we leave the abdomen open and we come back in 48 hours. If the bowel recovered, then we resect. If you can join, you join. If you cannot join, you put a stoma, which will be temporary, obviously. If the child is very sick and unsafe, what we do, we resect and tie and drop. So if there are multiple areas you are unhappy, we tie them and drop them inside. And this is what the, the military do in, 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 in the battlefields. They, there's no time to do a full laprotomy and resect and join bowel. You drop things and you make the child send them to ITU they, and you correct the, hypo, the hy, hy, hypothermia, the acidosis, the coagulopathy, which can cascade and, 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 and make the child uh, have an unfavorable outcome. When they go to ITU, things, all those things uh, reverse, then they can come back and fight another day with a favorable outcome. And then there's a scenario where you might find the entire bowel dead and, and they have no chance and you go back and there's no chance. This can be something which is controversial, can be an ethical dilemma, but there might be occasions where you might decide to do nothing. If you have to show bowel, there are ways of by which we can lengthen the bowel, which is beyond the scope of this lecture, but we can lengthen bowel. There are lots of innovative techniques and some patients might end up with bowel transplant. Bowel transplant is not like kidney and liver, it's more complicated. The, um, the bowel is very antigenic uh, and, it's, um, and some patients might not, uh, might not get to the top of the waiting list and get a transplant. Anyway, there is an innovative technique described by a chap called uh, Ed Kiley, who was a very eminent professor in Great Ormond Street, he retired recently. And what he did, he had small babies who had any, uh, had, um, sorry, malnutrition volvulus, and the bowel was ischemic as this. And what he did, he thought we could, after he did all those operations steps we mentioned earlier, he tried to milk the mesentery and dislodge the clot and gave those babies arteplase or plasma, uh, plasmidium activating factor. And those, uh, those, and this is exam, this is his case. There were only two in the series and the bowel recovered. So we, 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 we experienced this uh, as well. And, and we had similar uh, good outcome. It doesn't work all the time, but it's worth the trial. You have to be very careful on choosing this 
modality of treatment because especially if you have a small preterm baby there, you are a, you are a potential risk of interventricular hemorrhage. And you can solve one problem and create a, a bigger problem. So one of those things that you have to uh, carefully plan it. And, and there are occasions where we use heparin, which we thought could be something useful, but not as aggressive as, as, as a thrombolytic agent. Okay then, next I'm gonna talk about abdominal wall defects. And there are a large number of them. And for the sake of this lecture, I'm gonna to stick to gastroschisis. And gastroschisis is this uh, condition where you have a hole next to the right, to the right of the umbilicus and the bowel and viscera is hanging out. There is factors, is smoking, young age mothers using abusing drugs and or even things you can buy over the counter like cough syrups, this can all cause vascular incidence. There are rare cases reported on the left-hand side, but classically on the right, because usually induce the right umbilical vein. And, and what we tend to do is, obviously it can be simple, where it's things are hanging out, and, and sometimes it's complex, where there are perforations, atresias, and those are more complex to deal. And I can tell you the majority of the ones I had in the last few years were all complex. And they took few operations to get there, but the majority have done exceptionally well, but over a long, long time, I can tell you. What you do as a neonatologist when they, these babies are born, you cover the bowel with anything cling film. You make sure that the bowel is not twisted and it can happen very easily. People overlook a twist. Sometimes babies are born in, in distress, fetal distress, and because the bowel is twisted and it can be easily overlooked if people don't look carefully. You centralize the bowel, stabilize it, put things on the sides, stop it from kinking and mesentery get compromised. You put fluids. And you give antibiotics, you can put a catheter. This is silo. Silo is, is where they put the, save the grains in the farms. And here we can put the bowel here. The flank goes under the, the ring goes. So this is one of my colleagues putting this into the flange uh, under the fascia. And you gradually reduce it over days. And then eventually close it either on the bedside or you can take them to theater. So there are many ways of doing this. Why we do it slowly and gradually? Because if you shove everything inside the belly, all at once, you will develop abdominal compartment syndrome, which is a very serious condition. So the pressure builds up. And as the pressure builds up, they compromise the venous return, cardiac output will fall down, the ventilation becomes difficult for the And then they need high pressures. Pressure on the renal veins will result in oliguria, and then the gut can become compromised. And CSF pressure goes up. Hopefully, somebody will recognize there's something wrong and do something about it early. How can you do that? You can transduce uh, um, a urethral catheter and can measure the intra-abdominal intra or intravasical pressure, which is an indirect measurement. If the pressure goes up, you do something, you open the abdomen again, and do something about it. You can put a patch or something to repair it. So these are different options from taking them to theater and closing it, from doing it on the bedside. The advantage of this is that you don't have to put the child to general anesthesia. General anesthesia is debatable, the benefits and the risks of it in a newborn, uh, anesthetic agents, in, in animal models, in, in rats, has caused apoptosis of brain cells. In children, it is, we feel is safe, but it's something that's people are closing and uh, looking into it. So certainly you're not gonna do any plastic cosmetic operation in an infant in the first year of life 
which is not justified. So the only emergency or surgery which is indicated. These children will take them about at least two weeks to get going. If they don't get going by six weeks, we do a contrast study from the bottom, look for atresia. Overall, the majority do well. Only a small percentage have the complicated ones. This is a new concept. Sometimes people have noticed that these babies in utero, when you do antenatal scans, you realize after a while that the in utero bowel is becoming dilated and this bowel, this defect is getting close, closing slowly. And eventually this, we had scans, in fact, earlier on some series where this bowel has seen been floating in the amniotic fluid, completely new. This is the most of the small cut. So now what we tend to do is if we see scans suggestive of this happening, we deliver the baby early, yeah? To prevent this from happening. Osophilitresia, this is again a very fascinating condition and we gauge pediatric surgeon by two operations, osophilitresia and the second one is neonatal hernias, inguinal hernias, especially preterm hernias. Those are very delicate operations and the embryology of it is the foregut develops and separates from the, from the trachea and some have a communication. We do a babygram like this, the child will present with frothy, uh, cyano uh, maybe cyanosis, you put a tube, the tube coils up at the top. There are many things you can get from this x-ray, I can tell you. You can judge the heart, you can judge how many ribs are there, you can judge if there are vertebral anomalies. You see the esophageal atresia, you see sometimes duodenal atresia, you must sometimes in a rectal anomaly, you can see sacral anomalies. So this babygram is a very useful test. There are many things you can look at. The main investigation of choice before you operate is an echo. As we said, uh, sorry, I didn't mention the bacterial association is vertebral, anorectal, cardiac, tracheal, esophageal, it's an American way of writing it, renal and limb anomalies. Echo is essential. That's the main investigation before operating because if it's the arch of the aorta is on the right, you might have to do operation on the left, otherwise you have to do operation from the right. The potential complicating this operation is leak. If it's a simple leak, we manage conservative. If it's a big leak, you have to go back. They can stricture secondary to the leak itself or if it's brought under tension. Those might need dilatation if required. If you have a recurrent fistula, might present later on in life with a recurrent chest infection, you have to reoperate. Reflux is very common and tracheomalacia can be quite problematic where you might have to do something we call an orthopexy to deal with it. This is the classic type of esophagitis we see where there's a blind ending proximal pouch and a distal pouch communicating with the trachea at the level of the carina. It can communicate higher up or lower down depending. Mycorrhiza malis is a, a manifestation of cystic fibrosis. So if you see a Mycorrhiza malis, this child is likely to have CF, about 80 to 90%. Whereas if you have CF, your chance of getting meconium is only 10 to 20%. And again, it can be simple or complicated. That can be associated with the volvulus and atresia and uterine perforations. And it's one of those presentations of what we call delayed passive meconium. If you were to remember, all babies, well, 90-95% of babies should pass meconium within the first 24 hours. And about 99% should pass meconium within 48 hours. If you haven't, so the remaining 1%, it will include all these scenarios, things like Hirschsprung disease, meconium malis, meconium plug, anorectal uh, anomalies, the medical causes, prematurity, things like, like uh, uh, hypo, hypothyroidism. And there's a very interesting condition called small left colon syndrome, 
which is a manifestation of babies of diabetic mothers. You can see sometimes when you saw bubble appearance or a new Hauser sign. New Hauser was a radiologist who worked with uh, William Latt. And, and, and uh, how you manage meconium ILS is you use an enema, and the enema can be diagnostic and therapeutic, especially if you use gastrographin. If it doesn't work, you might have to do a laparotomy, and you can see this is meconium and determined ileum emptied. Am I running out of time? Dr. Khalid, three, three minutes remaining. Okay. Okay, Mikkel's diverticulum is another condition which can happen in uh, um, presenting children, either bleeding, diverticulitis, interception, or band obstruction. I can tell you I've seen all these numerous of times. So we call it disease of two, but I think maybe people have to relook it. I think it's more than two because it's uh, fairly common in my hands. I just wanted to mention this. These magnets, can be super powerful. And unfortunately, there, is, there are loads of them now in the market in Amazon and so forth. They can be very colorful. Kids use them as, as uh, uh, pretend piercing, as they say. They can put them between the lips or between the ears and, and malicus. And I can tell you, it has been absolutely notorious. I've seen this child who had these magnets and I did serial x-rays, it wouldn't go away. I can tell you, some from the endoscopy, he had a full laparotomy some were eroding through the stomach wall. These half of them were in the ileum, half were in the jejunum. So had numerous bar-resection stimosis to join and get rid of these 29 beads magnets. This little boy, again, he swallowed these magnets. It was notorious to get them out. And they were just super powerful. They can grasp them, you cannot pull them out. Eventually I decided to push them into the stomach. And surprise, surprise, they perforated the lower esophagus. You can see now pneumometastinum tracking into the air, into the subcutaneous tissue and this lifting the, uh, lifting the thymus from the heart. And these were those six notorious magnets. This boy we managed conservatively. I put the center line, we gave him PN. He kept milk by mouse, 10 days, repeat contrast normal. He was fed and went home. And I told his mother not to give him ever magnets again. It's a risk now highlighted by uh, NHS England. Last but not least, maybe I just touch on hernia. Hernia it can be an emergency. It's more common in boys. Uh, common preterm babies should be fixed before babies are discharged because high risk of incarceration. Uh, we rely on history from the families. We are not able to see it. And just to remember, complete anti-sensitivity syndrome. It's one of those fascinating syndromes. One of the manifest presentation can be unilateral when of hernia in a girl in about one to six percent, in about nearly seven percent in bilateral. Appendicitis, maybe I don't have to elaborate more on it, you all know it. Maybe one thing just to mention, because it can be easily missed, and one of the main medical legal uh, things in pediatric surgery is appendicitis, missed appendicitis or delayed presentation. If a child come in and they say it burn the tummy hairs when you wee, passing urine, it is, uh, it is not UTI. There's a difference between burning urine and abdominal pain when you pass urine. Because I see many times GP give them antibiotics, saying the UTI, more antibiotics, and it's a missed appendicitis. There are no more nicer tests to examine when, when you examine a child to blow, to suck, to cough, to hop and jump. All this will give you an idea if they have peritonism or peritonitis. This will bring fissure and parietal peritoneum together. Please do not do a rebound tenderness, yeah?
if I do rebound tetanus to any of you guys, I'm sure you're going to jump. And certainly if you do it to me, I'm going to jump, probably from the surprise more than anything else. Intersusception, I think we touched on it. And this is, uh, we published this because it was one of the complications of um, a rotavirus vaccine. And we use an air enema reduction to reduce it. Um, we need to prepare for it. We need to prepare theater if it were to fail. And we need to have a white bore cannula in case it perforates. So we decompress the abdomen. Um, I think for completion, acute testicular torsion is an emergency. And this is again a time critical because more than six hours the testicle recovery becomes less. Classically seen in two peaks, in perinatally and in adolescence. And when we go and salvage it, if it is viable, and certainly we have to fix the other one because it carries the same risk. I think I'm going to stop here. Okay, thank you for this rather quick rush, but I try to cover as much as possible. As I said, there are lots of fascinating conditions and obviously I cannot cover them all in one day, but we try to cover as much as possible. I hope you found it useful. Thank you very much, Dr. Usama. And um, we were behind the scene thinking that um, this session is very much interesting, too much useful. And uh, it seems one hour is really not enough to cover everything, but thank you for this very much um, comprehensive review. We have one question, meanwhile, in the chat uh, from Renda is asking, how to differentiate between intersusception and enterocolitis in scenarios? All right. Okay, sorry. Um, intersusception is classically seen in the age group between two months and two years. And happens usually around the time, the peak is in about five months to 10 months of age. And it classically happens where the bowel telescope inside each other. It tends to occur because of a gastroenteritis or upper respiratory tract infection. You get purse patches, which are lymphoid tissue in the terminal ileum. It becomes heavy and enlarged and it pushes the bowel. So it telescopes inside each other. So intersusceptum goes into the recipient as if it's a recipient, yeah? And these kids will classically have vomiting, screaming, inconsolable, pulling legs. In that typical age group, you might pass red current jelly. Professor Pathology used to say all this food of uh, English people, we don't have in Sudan red current and all that. But anyway, something which is got a bit of blood in the rectum. And, and when you examine them, you find might see what we call an empty right atelic fossa, we call it dance sign, it has nothing to do with dancing, but it's a pediatrician from America who named it. And you might feel a mass in somewhere in the right upper quadrant or anywhere, or sometimes rarely it might prolapse even per rectum. Enterocolitis, I'm not sure what you mean by enterocolitis. You mean enterocolitis as, as uh, Hirschsprung associated enterocolitis, which enterocolitis like in a preterm NEC like picture. Those classically would be seen in much extreme age group and small preterm babies. Uh, but interception is, is a classic age group, two months to two years or three months to three years to make it fit. If you see interception outside that age group, you have to think of what we call a pathological lead point. 
and by far the commonest pathological leak point, 75% is what we call a Meckel's diverticulum. But you can have polyps, you can have even foreign bodies, you can have even catheters put in like tubes and so forth. Uh, it can be a presentation of lymphoma as well. My interest is mainly on oncology and, and I've seen lymphoma, non-Hodgkin lymphoma presenting with an interception. Thank you, Dr. Khalid. Uh, another question, uh, how to differentiate between testicular torsion and epididymarchitis? All right, this is a one million pound question. It's not that easy. And in fact, sometimes the golden rule, if we are not sure, we explore them. Nobody will blame you if you explore a red, tender, swollen hemiscrotum, and you're not sure what the diagnosis is. But certainly if you were to miss a torsion, you will, the family will get money from the hospital. It's not defensible. Classically, epidemiorchitis, it, you can see it in small babies, small infants, less than one year, and those likely to be secondary to a, 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 an anomalous renal tract. So something like a duplex kidney, or children have an extrophy, bladder extrophy or colloquial extrophy. What happens is, is that they have ectopic ureters. And what happens is if they have reflux in the urinary tract, that can reflux into the uh, seminal vesicles and to the vas and give them the orchitis. You can get orchitis in a bigger age, children, maybe five, 10 or whatever. If they get, for example, mumps, you can get mumps orchitis or adenoviruses and other viruses. If you are a much older child or sexually active teenager, then you can get a chlamydia. But in the context of where there is no smelly urine, no discharge, nothing suggests renal tract anomaly, um, um, somebody who's 10 or 12 or, four, or seven or eight, any, or this childhood age, then I think it would be very difficult to, to diagnose with the morchitis and sometimes you have to diagnose it retrospectively after surgery. Recently we had discussion with our radiologist saying, would they be able to pick it up? And, and they made a quiz for us. They gave us images of four, I think, uh, cases and where we think it's arthritis is not, and it's a torsion, and where it's a torsion is arthritis and it's normal. And so it's very difficult to diagnose an ultrasound scan. Uh, and, and I think radiologists won't feel comfortable saying it if it's a bit more arthritis uh, on a scan. And uh, because they will always be worried if you don't operate and miss a torsion. Thank you, Dr. Khalid. I hope this uh, answers your question, Inas. We have four more questions, Mr. Khalid. The first of which from Ahmed Alilwi, uh, saying thank you for the interesting lecture. Can you please explain more about the new management of valvulus by TPA? Is it now worldwide used? Well, I'm not sure it's worldwide used, but it was described by Mr. Kylie, who is a very respected surgeon. In, in, in London, he retired recently. And, and certainly we adopted his, his technique and there's lots of literature since then. There are small series. I mean, pediatric surgery, you might have noticed that it is has the lowest evidence in medicine. If you look into, for example, adult medicine or adult respiratory or even pediatric medicine, I'm sure, you have the highest evidence by doing randomized controlled trials you randomize patient to this and that, you blind the investigator and the assessor. Uh, 
we rarely do this in pediatric surgery, unfortunately, because of the nature of, the, of, of our profession. The index cases, as we call them, like Hirschsprungs or Enrector or Osophilatresia and so forth, they are very limited numbers. In a medium center like Leicester or in Nottingham, probably will get a 10 or 15 of each of these conditions a year. And hence, now we move to, even with our unit, to only smaller group of surgeons doing these cases. So as there are only three of us who do Osophilatresia and Diaphragmaticania, and two who do Enrector and Hirschsprungs, for example because the numbers are very small. Uh, and, and this is, again, as I said, it makes us don't have the evidence to, uh, by doing randomized control trials, we need to have big number of cases, we need to have multi-centers, we need to have, uh, we need to collaborate with other people. Uh, we need to have a long-term follow-up. And the other thing is that the surgeon technique is variable. The way I operate is different from my colleagues. Everybody will do things differently. So these are all limitations, but it's certainly something that worth the trial because if you are left, if the child is gonna be left with a dead entire mid-cut, this child will have a very difficult life if this child is going to survive. So you have to do the best you can to improve his chances of recovery. And certainly considering heparin or alteplase or urokinase or whatever, something thrombolytic and try to massage the bowel, give it a breather. We don't close the abdomen, we leave the abdomen open to prevent reperfusion injuries and even more redeem and more compromise to the bowel. Thank you, Dr. Khalid. Uh, another new question from Awa. Is the intersusception of HSP respond well to steroids and conservative treatment? Um, it does. Well, I don't have a huge series of it, but the numbers I was involved with, I was certainly not keen to take this child to theater. And I negotiated with a pediatrician and they, they managed to reverse it, yes. Because it's a vasculitis, it is, it's, it's, going, it's not in the child's best interest to open. Sorry, that was my timer for the 40 minutes. Maybe I started a bit late. But... Um, what I'm saying is, um, and it is usually it's a small bowel interception. So the air enema reduction is not going to work for those. If you have a Meckles, if you have a, a Henoch-Channel line purpura, those are not the classic alicolic type where you put a rectal tube and push air and hold the bottom ends together and reduce it. Here, they're not going to reduce. This is, they need a laprotomy or a laparoscopy at least. Thank you. Um, the next two questions are about gastroscitis, so I will uh, recite them together. The first uh, is how long can we keep the bowels in this silo? And the second one from Fatima saying, I remember we had a unit with gastroscitis, all things done, but insertion of bowel into abdomen was not possible due to small abdominal wall. Unfortunately, baby die of sepsis. What to do if this is the case? And is there similar, are there similar cases? Okay, so so the okay. I'll answer the second question. She's she's absolutely right. If the bowel has never been into the abdomen, then the abdominal domain is small, and this is this is always the problem. You cannot put everything back. Uh, then otherwise you develop abdominal compartment because the abdomen is small. So what we do by putting it in the silo, we're trying to cheat in the sense that every day we tweak a little bit in. 
with weak a little bit then. So we allowed the abdomen to stretch gradually so to, to accommodate this over time. And there are different silos. There is a preformed silo, which is the ready-made one, which is easy to use. Uh, sometimes if you don't have it, you can use even a saline bag or anything reinforced elastic and stitch it, physically stitch it all the way around the defect and put it like a, like a, like a tower, stitch it from the side and stitch it from the top. And then every day you squeeze it and put another row of steel sutures. This is how we used to do it before we had this preformed silo. And, um, and the difficulty is, uh, yes, it's, it's uh, um, might not be able to fit it all in, but you can use eventually, if it's abdominal domain is impossible to put everything back in, you can use a patch of some description uh, to bridge the muscles. And then you try to close the skin, or you can put the patch for the skin itself. So it's unfortunate that this child died from sepsis because um, obviously you need to have the facility and backup. You need to have be in an environment where you can treat sepsis, you can have um, access for central line, for inotropes, for all intensive care. You need to have the ability to, um, to use uh, different, uh, different patches. There are synthetic patches, there are biological patches made from uh, skin, pig skin, from intestinal submucosa, sheep. And there are different things where antigenesis have been taken away, so they, be, they won't be rejected by the body. Uh, but yes, there is a mortality associated with, with, with gastroschisis. And as I said, in, in about four to six percent of gastroschisis, even in the Western world, they might not make it because of the nature of the complexity of the bowel that's left behind, whether it has multiple atresias, multiple perforations, short gut and complications of short gut itself. How long can you keep it in a silo? Well, ideally, you don't want to keep it longer than seven days, especially those spring loaded or even less than that, because the longer you leave it, the, the, the defect gets stretched and the stretch gets bigger and bigger then it's more difficult to close. And then certainly you need a patch to close it. It's not impossible, you can put a patch, but to avoid the patch, you would rather be aggressive with the reduction and, and close it as quickly as possible and take the, and take the side off. Um, thank you. Um, we have one last question. I'm aware that we are one minute left, but um, I think, yeah, you may prefer to answer this question. Uh, it's from Techno. Come on, asking uh, a brief about post-operative management of uh, TOF, transesophageal fistula. Okay, so so we get it easier. Again, different surgeons have different preference. But what we tend to do when we repair it, so we open the chest from the right, we find the two ends. First, obviously, we take one from the trachea, close the trachea defect. And, and open the blind ending upper pouch, join them together. And we pass what we call a TAT, which is a transanastomotic tube. The advantage of having a TAT is that you can feed the baby on day two, if you wish, because you are avoiding the anastomosis, even if it leaks, but you're feeding distally, it should be fine. So that's number one. I'll give antibiotics maybe for five days. People might argue you don't have to give five days, but leaks don't happen on day one. Leaks, they have, tend to happen usually on day two, three, four, and five. Beyond day five, unlikely it's going to leak. 
or let's say day seven, certainly leak would be very unusual to have leak after day seven. If you had to bring the two ends under extreme tension, then what we would recommend is that you keep the neck of the baby flexed and you keep the baby paralyzed and ventilated for five or seven days to allow anastomosis to heal. And we encourage the neonatal team to work closely with us and avoid displacing the tattoo and avoid reintubating the child because reintubating can be very risky because you will hyperextend the neck. You will try to reintubate. And if your reintubation is difficult, you bag them beforehand. Or if God forbid ended up the difficult intubation and intubated those of us, you will disrupt the anastomosis. So previously people used to talk about outcome of esophageal atresia based upon two factors. If they have cardiac anomalies and what is their weight? If your weight is more than 1.5 kilos and you don't have a cardiac anomaly, your prognosis is favorable. But people notice over the years it's not that simple. The postoperative care is very crucial. And I understand maybe the question is coming from somebody who's aware of how the postoperative care if it goes suboptimal, that can change the outcome significantly. So yes, it has, and that's why now there is argument for osobiotherapy not to be done by every surgeon and not in every center. It should be centralized and people, teams work together to look after these babies who have osobiotherapy to have a favorable outcome. Oh, sorry. One other thing to mention, I tend to put them on PPIs, proton pump inhibitors, for at least six months because there is reflux associated with it. As you can imagine, you pull the esophagus up, you reduce the intra-abdominal length of the esophagus, you open the angle of his. There are many factors that counter the reflux, they are lost. So if, the, if, the, if it were to reflux into the anastomosis, that can increase stricture rate. So we give them, put them on PPIs for six months, and then we gradually wean it off. Reflux is 50% of children with Soviet atresia have gastrosophia reflux, and maybe 10 to 20% end up, end up with a, some anti reflux procedure later on, like a fundoplication. Thank you, Dr. Khalid. And we have many thank yous flowing in the, in the, chat, in the chat box. Um, now we will go out, back out for um, five minutes break. Coming back from the break, everybody will find themselves in a breakout room. Uh, four breakout rooms um, moderated in each room to discuss surgical cases. Uh, each room um, is required to nominate a volunteer by the end of the discussion, coming back to the main room to um, verbalize and dictate their discussion output to Dr. Khalid, and then Dr. Khalid will go in details uh, over all the cases. So see you all in, uh, in five minutes, and I can uh, hand over to Rehab now. Thank you. Please guys just stay logged in so that uh, we can um, divide you into the break rooms so you can go for the break five minutes, but uh, please don't leave the Zoom if that's possible. Thank you. I did you with Slido with RDS? Sorry? I didn't hear you. I did you. In slide two. Okay. RDS get two. Ventilated. He's, he was ventilated for the, for the first week of life. Okay. Okay, brilliant. <clears throat> Fine. Do you want to add anything? Uh, 
No? Okay, fine. Okay, well done. So, so you can see this babygram, it shows this baby is ventilated. You can see an ET tube, you can see an NG tube. You can see the lungs are not great. These lungs are got features of RDS, certainly. Um, what you can see in the abdomen, you can see florid nematosis intestinalis, as you've said, some linear, some frothy ones everywhere. So it's got florid nematosis intestinalis. I couldn't see a definite free air, and it's difficult to see if there is maybe a tiny bit of portal venous gas there, which are all would, be, would have been counting as poor prognostic markers. <clears throat> Fine. I'm going to take you through a few of my slides. So NEC, as we said, it's, it's, a, it's a multifactorial problem. It's, it's got prematurity, but immaturity of the gut, this multidisciplinary problem, there's a barrier. And, and certainly you don't see it on the child hasn't been fed. So feeding certainly is, is a factor to, to trigger this colonization. And then there are other factors which might play a role, whether blood transfusion, it's and this loss of reports on bad NEC following the transfusion. I've um, this is what we call a bell classification. We don't write in the notes, this is a bell one or bell two, but what we do, we look for these things. And bell one is when you suspect NEC, and bell two when is a definite NEC, and bell three is an advanced or complicated NEC. So in bell one, and we look into systemic science, abdominal science, and radiology. So in a suspected one, you got this bradys and DSATs, gastric aspirates, maybe blood in the stools, and the X-ray might show just dilated bowel loops, nothing else. If it were to progress, then you get more metabolic acidosis, you start to consume platelets, and then the abdomen is become more sore, distended, absent bowel sounds, and, and it show features of redness. And those redness, classically, you see periambalical, you can see it in the flanks, and on the scan, you might see, again, positive gas, nematosis intestinalis is definitely that's a, that's the landmark of the disease. On the advanced one, when you have either perforation or uh, further complications, those they tend to be more ill, needing a lot of support and maybe anotropic support. So we document in the notes what have we've seen, and we say this is NEC, likely to be NEC, treat as NEC, and, and sometimes we might say, fine. This is free air, this is complicated, this needs to go, failed medical therapy, whatever we need to take to theater. I've summarized, this, is, was, a random, this was a, a meta-analysis looking into the different causes, uh, what uh, increases risk of NEC, reduces and make no difference. And I've highlighted the main ones like prematurity and acid suppression medicines. And I'm sure most neonatal units now will not use in small preterm babies, um, H2 blockers or, or PPIs, because the known association now is no doubt beyond that. Things which are beneficial is the breast milk. And there are breast milk banks which, which, which help support this. And those where there's no difference, maternal age, the weight and so forth. So, so this, is, this is a bit in summary. Um, there is something we call SIP, which is spontaneous eyelid perforation which is different from NEC, it's usually a more favorable condition. It tends to be more localized and uh, mainly on very small, tiny babies who use endomethacine. 
and, and, and sometimes you might be able to guess it when you see a small preterm baby who's well, but has got free air, you expect, suspect that might be the case rather than when somebody who looks very sick. However, it can Mr. be Harry, wrong. Yes? We have two minutes more in this case. Thank you. Okay. So the medical therapy, as you said, would be nailed by mouse and YouTube, prospective anti antibiotic based on the, on the unit and the supportive care, giving platelets, giving, um, full, giving pack cells and so forth. When would you operate? Free air is a definite indication. Medical therapy failure, active, Relative indication, fixed bowel loops, water venous gas. Green scrotum means perforation and dead bowel, or some going into the scrotum because you've got a patent for vaginalis, you've got hernias like. Gas is abdomen, resistant uh, acidosis. And, and how do we manage in the UK? There's a lot of variation practice. There was this randomized uh, control trial using drain versus uh, laprotomy. And what we found that the drain can stabilize babies and three quarters of them will need a definitive laprotomy. The surgery is a collective decision taken by anesthetist, surgeon, and a neonatologist. They need to agree that they're acting on the child's best interest. And this will be the objective will be to reduce contamination, preserve lens. We know in the, in the third trimester, the lens of the small bowel was double or even triple. And that's why we're conscious to preserve every millimeter possible, even if it's iffy, we bring a storm proximal and allow it to see whether it heals, whether it will stricture, and we can always go back and deal with it. And we don't do laparoscopy. And what is a useful thing sometimes to recycle? If you've got a storm over the mucus fistula, Why did you unmute? So unmute yourself, please. Mr. Khaled, you are mute. Can you unmute yourself, please? Oh, sorry. Sorry. So I don't know. Have you heard this slide then? When I talked about, sorry, I didn't realize no. myself. Okay, sorry. Did you hear this one? Yes. No. Okay. Yes, until here, yes. Yeah. So when we did the trial, which was multi-center trial, looking into putting a drain by the bedside or doing a full laparotomy, we found that the patients who managed with the drain initially, three quarters of them needed a definitive laparotomy. So the drain is only a temporizing measure. It's not a definitive treatment. And as I said, the surgery will be a decision made by the neonatologist, by the surgeon, and the anesthetist. They all agree that it's in the child's best interest to go ahead with the surgery. We're meant to reduce contamination. We preserve lens. The lens of the small bowel will triple, at least double in the third trimester. So these are small preterm babies. We try to preserve every millimeter possible because we know that will be centimeters and, and more substantial lens long-term. Should we bring a stoma? Should we anastomose? All depends on the situation. Is, is this a pan NEC? Is this multifocal NEC? And then clip and drop, as we said, that's like in the military. The military, in fact, they learned it from the pediatric surgeons, to be honest, because this is an old tradition in pediatric surgery and the military has only been experienced in the more recent wars. Second, look laparotomy is an option, just like in the volvulus. And, and this is, was to recycle. If you have two stomas, one, mu one stoma and a mucus fistula next to it, you can recycle 
whatever comes from the top, put it on the other. And that will help reduce the amount of PN you need. It will help mature that distal bowel. And, and technically, it's very helpful it, that will correct the discrepancy when you try to join them. Because if one is functioning and the other one is not in use, it will be very small and there will be a discrepancy which potentially increase the risk of a stomatic leak. And this Professor Tan is a very reputable surgeon from Hong Kong. Um, the surgeons can do different stomas. I tend to do it like this, the majority of the group, where they put them by the end of this uh, lobotomy wound. Some people put it on either side. Depends really on what, what you find and how easy they will come to the surface. You can put them separate from the wound and surgeon think that reduces infection, but lots of literature support that there is no difference. Okay, did we answer this question or what is the view, what's the answer, the group, they feel about this? Uh, I would like Inas maybe again to contribute if she likes. Yes, please. Inas, would you possible? So this NEC, the entire small bowel has got NEC, 26 weaker, 900 grams. What are you going to do? These are real scenarios, I can tell you. I think you can go ahead, Mr. Khalid. Sorry, okay, Inas is not answering. Okay, fine. So this is a very difficult situation you are in. And, and certainly in this, you will, rather, you will speak with the neonatologist and you will ask them to come to the theater, in fact, and tell them this is the situation. And unfortunately, we are beyond our limits. And, and sometimes you might elect to just close the abdomen and uh, withdraw care, unfortunately. If you can, if you're sick bound and bring a proximal stoma, put the child on PM, you'll end up with liver failure. Liver failure, PN induced liver failure is a very funny disease. It doesn't happen in term children. It doesn't happen if God forbid one of us end up with, with losing the bowel for whatever reason and being on PN. You can be on PN for your life. But in a small baby, it's very injurious to the, to the liver and end up in fulminant liver failure. You lose access. Anyway, so this is a difficult scenario. Just something to be aware of because it can happen sometimes. Okay, case two. Thank you, Dr. Khaled. Yeah. Nazik, Nazik Alamin will present. Group two, uh, do you have your nominated uh, person? Nazik, Nazik Alamin. Okay, Nazik. I'm not sure if she's here or having technical issues. Maybe we'll go ahead and start the case. Any other volunteers? Mm -hmm. Sammy, you can present. Hello, Salam alaikum. Uh, sorry, I couldn't unmute myself initially. Uh -huh. So, uh, regarding our case, uh, I was as a neonatologist. I was as a neonatologist uh, asked to counsel the parents regarding a fetus with uh, showing congenital diaphragmatic hernia in the left side. 
regarding this, when we discuss, we said it uh, depends on uh, multifactorial because it is a fetus. Uh, initially, we can uh, assess the head to fist ratio. It will give us clue. Uh, also, we'll ask uh, when it was uh, discovered antenatally. Is it early? That means more uh, compromised to the lungs. Uh, and we will be prepared after delivery of the baby uh, because the Afghar score of the baby will affect the outcome. Also, how the baby is distressed and uh, how much he needs to be support uh, hemodynamically. And uh, we will uh, suspect the PPHN. That's why we will uh, conduct ECHO. So all of this factor will depend uh, our decision about the prognosis. So we will sit uh, as a group, uh, as a neonatologist and the obstetrical and the pediatric surgeon as early as possible with the parents and tell them about the uh, initial possible plan for this uh, child. And uh, regarding the question if the, we will take the baby to the surgery uh, or not, uh, we will be happy to take the baby for surgery when he is in the minimal um, ventilator support and hemodynam hemodynamically stable. Um, uh, and uh, we will uh, work uh, cooperatively with the media surgery team. Uh, and usually uh, this kind of uh, surgery will carry the first uh, on the list. Uh, and regarding the next slide, the X-ray, uh, yeah, initially one of my colleagues he suggested that this one may be tension pneumothorax and he would like to put a chest tube, but uh, this is a common complication after uh, repair of diaphragmatic hernia. And for sure there is a, some fluid there and uh, uh, we will, uh, after the X-ray follow-up, it seemed like it's not an uh, attention pneumothorax, just an, when they pull the bowel uh, to the, its original uh, position, it seemed like uh, with time, it's resolved spontaneously. Uh, so before putting just a tube, we need to sit with the media surgeon team. So we will not um, uh, lose the effort and the thing that they did in the surgery. Uh, and I think if they would like to put a chest tube, they can put it on their surgery, on the table, on the OR. Um, what else? Also regarding the prognosis, um, if there is a herniation of the stomach or the organ, the liver, also it would be a, a good prognosis. Thank you. Good, good, very good. Okay. Um... Sorry, is this my, is it me sharing now? Okay, yes. Okay, brilliant, yes. So the CDH, <clears throat> so common scenario you, you tend to see. And it's one of those where, when I, when I first started training, certainly we used to say, if you, were, if you were to counsel this family, you'll tell them there is the chance of survival is 50%. Because <clears throat> there is what we call the hidden mortality. Um, there are lots, there is percentage which have miscarriage because associated cardiac anomalies or chromosomal anomalies. There are some who were families will decide to terminate. There are ones which will die before even coming to the tertiary unit. 
And then those who come to tertiary and some who will not survive to go for the surgery. So those who survive the surgery, then their prognosis certainly is they go already into a favorable group in the sense that they will be survival as well above 80% um, or so. Um, the incidence, as we know, most neonatal surgical conditions, uh, they're in the range of one in 2,000, one to one in 5,000, like an erectile Hirschsprung, whatever, all this one in 5,000. Um, as you correctly said, it's associated anomalies that determines the outcome in addition to the lung hypoplasia to the pulmonary hypertension whether the liver is up. So in some centers, they might decide to send them for a pediatric cardiologist who will do a fetal echo. And, and there are many centers now will do a fetal MR. They can work things like, as you said, the total lung volume. And on ultrasound, you work out the fetal lung head ratio and you can decide whether the liver is up and down. So based on all these factors, you can, you can give an estimate prognosis. Um, at birth, uh, you know better than me that should be delivered by a senior neonatologist, should be there. You give them paralysis quickly at aquarium and intubate before they breathe and inflate and dilate bowel loops inside the chest and compromise ventilation further. You put an NG tube, decompress the bowel. You keep them dry and warm and weigh them, examine them, look for anomalies. Access initially peripheral, then you put UA, UVC and UAC to monitor gases. You do a chest X-ray, you monitor pre and post ductal sats. So there should be a sat on the right arm and one on the left leg. And then you carry on, you try to stabilize, as you correctly said, you do an echo, because that's crucial. You look for pulmonary hypertension, a right-sided failure. And these are two terms which we use commonly in pediatric surgery as well, that people expect it to know in exams. The gentle ventilation, or we call it gentilation. It's a term we created as. Uh, which means gentle ventilation provide prevent barotrauma. When I was a trainee as a senior age, <clears throat> we looked into uh, one of the bad prognostic markers in, in CDH if you blow a pneumothorax on the contralateral side. None of them in fact survived. So it's very crucial to prevent barotrauma. And the second thing you accept a high CO2, what we call permissive hypercapnia. So these two terms are when when you are when you are in a, sitting in a uh, in a viva examined on the CDH you are expected to say these two terms gentilation and permissive hypercapnia and how do you achieve that sometimes using high frequency oscillation using nitric oxide inhaled nitric oxide to reduce vasodilates. Uh, uh, you might need to use inotropes not overload them and maintain cardiac output. And ECMO. And certainly in Leicester, Leicester in fact is the first ECMO unit, unit in the country. So, so patients not only from Leicester, but they come from many places uh, to Leicester for ECMO. So it has a role and certainly the selection criteria would be patients who are in an unfavorable group who wouldn't survive if they were to have a standard of care. There are things which I don't want to go to for the sake of time, things like the fetal trial, where they use fetal tracheal occlusion. And this is something that was practiced and was mainly in King's College London. And, and it all stemmed from the fact that they found that lamb, there was a big lamb, was, had massive lungs and had uh, laryngeal atresia. And then they realized, okay, what's going on? 
if we want to obstruct the airway, maybe the lungs can inflate and become bigger. So that was the idea to obstruct the airway early on in the pregnancy and retrieve this uh, uh, balloon in the airway before delivery. But there were patients who certainly delivery can happen anytime and babies delivered outside kings and some nobody could take the tube out and the balloon. Anyway, I don't think it's going on. And, and, and clearly because those were the, the least favorable, the trial that was skewed in the sense that and it was abandoned eventually or the results were not uh, in favor. So- Mr. Khalid, when, we, have, we have one minute left in this case. Thank you. Okay then. So when would the neonatologist give permission for the surgeon to go and repair it? Is that when we stability, and stability means that preductal sats, 85 to 95 on 50% oxygen, no evidence of right to left shunt, and mean arterial pressure is maintained. And we, as we all know, the mean arterial pressure is more or less equal to the gestational age. So the baby said six weeks, the mean arterial pressure should be 76 and so forth or more. We need to have a urine, good urine ad adequate urine output and a lactate less than three. And the baby will tolerate suction and care so they can go to theater once they come on the way to theater and have difficulty stability. As you correctly said, this lung is here, this wedge is all air, but this space has to be filled with something because it was filled with bowel and you don't need to do anything. In fact, there was some pediatric surgeon, they used to stick a big sticker on the front of the chest saying, don't put a chest strain, yeah? So to remind the neonatologist not to put a chest strain ever because it will just fill with air, then fill with fluid, and then the lung will start to come up. You can see the lung here is coming up. And this only seven days, day seven. If we were to follow and uh, have kids who I've seen in months and years later, and the lungs, you will not know this. Why it suggests it's a tension hemothorax? Because the mediastinum is shifted and because the lung is so squashed. So anybody would think this is a tension. But because you know the background, the, the mediastinum has been sitting there. It's only after time the mediastinum will come back, sit, becoming as where it belongs. But it's been like this throughout the pregnancy. Okay, fine. Next scenario then. Yeah, so we have nominated um, a male and surgeon as well, so, so just for representation and equal opportunities. Oh, right. Uh, and his name is Ahmed. Okay, well done, Ahmed. Yes, salam alaikum. Can you share, share the screen, please? Um, Khaled, you want to share your screen? Um, you, you, you can you can still control the um, screens. Okay. Just go to the next case, Mr. Okay. Yes, yeah. that's it. Brilliant. Yeah. Mm -hmm. This is the case three. Uh, what is your diagnosis? We can see from. Uh, I think this is not our case. We. Ah, I'm I'm sorry. I think uh, I think we have discussed case four. I'm sorry for that. Can we skip to this to case four? If yeah, that, yeah, perfect. Thank you. Sorry for that. Yes, okay. This is a six-week-old male infant presented with weight with a week of projectile bilious vomiting. He lost weight and is constipated. You were suspected by rocksternosis. Why do how to you confirm the diagnosis? As from the the history of the patient and the late presentation with non-bilious uh, 
projectile vomiting, we put uh, uh, differential diagnosis of this case. It was in uh, top of uh, differential diagnosis, uh, hypertrophied uh, barrier stenosis and uh, reflux. Uh, what it was going with the uh, hypertrophied pyroxenosis that he non-bilious and projectile vomiting and uh, late presentation after uh, age of uh, five weeks or four weeks usually it's come and he lost uh, weight. Uh, the other the differential diagnosis we discussed was the reflux, but in reflux he, his weight would be stable. He will not usually will not uh, lose weight. So that uh, our our top differential uh, diagnosis was hypertrophied uh, pyroxenosis. How we uh, do uh, we confirm the diagnosis? Uh, we started from uh, examination. Usually, uh, the patient would be dehydrated uh, uh, due to uh, repeated uh, vomiting. Uh, we we suspect uh, to do uh, his abdomen usually will be not extended because as we we said uh, to. Uh, repeated vomiting. We, we suggest uh, this patient really we, uh, will has electrolyzed disturbance. So we suggest to do for him blood gases with, uh, most likely will, uh, will, uh, will, will see a hypo, uh, hypocalmic, uh, hypochloramic metabolic alkalosis uh, due uh, continuous loss of HCL during uh, the repeated vomiting. And after that, we suggested that uh, to confirm diagnosis uh, with ultrasound. Ultrasound to look for the diameter of the bilorus. We we have uh, we have to take uh, uh, transverse and uh, longitudinal section from the bilorus, and uh, we have to confirm the diameter of the the, the muscle of the bilorus and his long uh, the bilorus. And uh, what is the electrolyzed disturbance? We, we spoke about it usually uh, hypochloramic, hypochloramic, uh, metabolic alkalosis, usually sometimes will associate it most likely with hyponatremia. Uh, uh, it is essential to correct its preoperatively. Yes, it is essential. And it is sometimes will be uh, like uh, it's a pediatric emergency, not surgical emergency. If we admit the patient, we can admit him all the night and to do uh, uh, electrolytes to uh, repair this disturbance for the patient. When patient now uh, we, we corrected his BH and his chloride, we can uh, push for uh, surgery. What the treatment of choice? Treatment of choice is a surgery by myotomy. It's a long, uh, long time. It was Ramsted operation. We discussed that can be done either laparoscopic or open surgery. It depends on the on the hospital. Thank you. Okay. okay, okay, good, well done. Fine, so yes, I think we all agree this is pyloric stenosis. And um, as you said, it's Ramstead, who described this um, more, more than 110 years ago. So it's very common conditions, more common in Caucasians, is less common in Africans and Asians and it's more common in girls. Why is it more common in girls? I think it's one of those like the dislocated hip as well. Those they have, uh, there's no isolated gene as such, but it's one of those scenarios. It's key to take the history and it is progressive vomiting. As you said, it's not, you're not born with it. It's an acquired condition. It's not a congenital anomaly. And it happens around four to six weeks. It may take longer if you're preterm. And, uh, and the history, yes, usually the firstborn male, there's a family history. And if the family history comes from the maternal side, it tends to be even more suggestive. 
uh, you examine them, they're not necessarily dehydrated, especially in the UK, they present very early, I can tell you. Sometimes they, don't, they come with no electrolyte disturbance whatsoever, especially if they had a family history, the first vomit, they will come to hospital. So, um, and you feel for this olive, yeah? So you do a test feed. And this is tradition which people are, are abandoning it now. Whereas when I was in training, we never used to operate unless you feel it yourself. Even you have to feel them again when they're asleep in, in theater. But now people do scan before they see them. In fact, the pediatrician will see them first to the scan and verify them to surgeons. Anyway, the, to, to confirm it, you need a lens of more than 17 millimeter and a, and a thickness of four millimeter or a diameter more than eight, basically. So each is four. And there was an interesting study in America where they trained the surgical fellows how to do the scan. And they were as good as the radiologists, I can tell you. <laughs> they are trainable. And you look, your landmark is the, is the part, is the, let me go back. The landmark is this core bladder is sitting there. And you can see this burger next to it. with one, two leaves here and, and just a canal in between. So it's not difficult to, to diagnose. Uh, hypokalemic, hypokalemic, hypokalemic uh, metabolic alkalosis might be normal if you present early. And in extreme cases, if they left it for so long, you can see metabolic acidosis. And I've seen that completely shocked child who needed fluid resuscitation, needed boluses with 20 kilogram of saline to get them better before you correct alkalosis, uh, which will feature after that. And I can tell you, we had one extreme case where a baby was retrieved uh, to the PICU, who was apneic. And subsequently, this baby was found to have paralytic stones. He went to apnea because of the severe metabolic acidosis. You correct the shock with saline, and then the maintenance was 5% dextrose and 0.45 saline and potassium. And you need to understand, this is a very common exam question as well in pediatrics aid. We need to understand very well, how does the body compensate for this? So you compensate by respiratory acidosis, you retain CO2, you slow your respiratory rate, the renin and utensing aldosterone system kicks on, try to retain sodium, they lose potassium, and the kidney try to bring uh, the sodium back uh, and lose the hydrogen ion. So you end up with what we call paradoxical aciduria. You cannot take a child with metabolic acidosis, metabolic alkalosis to theater, because simply, and again, back to physiology, the drive for respiration, the medulla, the respiratory center, brain stem, is stimulated by the hydrogen ion, the low oxygen tension, and the high CO2. And if you have metabolic alkalosis, you don't have hydrogen ions, you're, you're retaining CO2, which is good, but when you are under anesthetic, ventilated, the anesthetic will push all the CO2 away and give you loss of oxygen, and then you'll arrest. You would have fantastic operation, but you go to the ward and you'll arrest, get a respiratory arrest. So you need to correct that because that's crucial. Um, I think a problem running out of time. So as you said, it is laparoscopic versus open. And this operation went from a big upper midline incision to a right upper transverse to Bianchi, which is a supraumbilical incision. And more recently now we do it laparoscopic. In our institute, we do it laparoscopic. And this was a randomized trial from London uh, with other centers. And basically they've shown that patients will go feed, get the full feeds and go home quicker if you do pyloromyotomy laparoscopic. This was published in The Lancet. One of the exceptional 
scenarios where pediatric surgery <laughs> published in Lancet, but this one of them. One minute more, Mr. Khalid. Oh, one minute more. Okay, then I can say more then. Uh, what about pyloric stenosis? Let me go back. Um, yes, so it's a very common scenario. It's something that people should know well, should know how to, when we give fluids, we give more than the, the maintenance. We give something around 150 mil per kilogram. It's important once we check the gases regularly, we need to make sure that the bicarb, that's our marker is the bicarb normalizes because the bicarb will be raised, which is about the attempt to correct the acidosis is getting rid of all that bicarb. So you, um, so once the electrolyte is correct, you need to go back to normal maintenance. Otherwise you will overcorrect it and the patient will be delayed going to theater more. Um, it's a nice condition. Yeah, can I ask a question? Mm -hmm. uh, do you tend to uh, see um, a smooth recovery for those cases, like uh, a quick one? Yes. In fact, we feed them, we feed them in six hours and they go home sometimes the same day or they go the next day. Thank you. Yeah. There are potential complications from this operation. You can end up with an inadequate myotomy. You can perforate. And it usually we perforate the deuterine end. And when you do inadequate myotomy, it's the gastric end. Um, there is wound infection. I tend to give one dose because the umbrella is not the cleanest part of the body, uh, but only one perioperative dose. Uh, there is sometimes you can get port site herniation. We only put one port around the umbilicus. The two small stabs are just with three millimeter instruments, one to hold the pylorus and one to incise it. And we put a spreader that we just open the, uh, the pylorus. But it's... it's um, um, there was some suggestion about uh, non-surgical um, options, which, which are really rare. Have you come across them before in yes, your practice? Yes, I have come across them, yes. You can give things like atropine. And, um, and atropine it's, means you have to put them on a monitor. It's going to be a very slow process. If you do nothing to these kids with a central line and give them PN, in three months, probably, they can feed. Because the natural history of this pyloric stenosis is a very funny condition. It will go away in itself. If you happen to operate on these babies later on in life for whatever reason, you go there, there's nothing left behind, as if it's never had it. It's a very peculiar condition, but in, in the expense of sitting and, or trying to, some people say an NJ tube. Can you get an NJ tube? If it's this pyloric is obstructed, it's very difficult to negotiate that. An NJ tube in the best of times is difficult to put it in, let alone if this pyloric stenosis. Atropine, as I said, is some people have tried it after failed pyloromatomy, but if it fails, it means inadequate, you should go and redo it. That's, it's a surgical condition, it's easily fixable, and you don't need to, to prolong the hospital stay and deny baby feeding, because the enjoyment of food is to taste it by mouse. Uh, thank you, thank you, uh, Mr. Khalid. The last case now. Uh, please, you're volunteering. Um, Ibtihal, uh, she's the one who volunteered. Assalamu alaikum. Wa alaikum assalam. Just if you can wait. Yeah. So we have case number three. What we can see in the picture, what is the diagnosis? Is anorectal malformation. We can see imperforate anus, and it could be a fistula because I can see some uh, meconium. Um, 
So what is the incidence of this condition? It's, it's not common condition. It is one in every 5,000. And uh, the common associated anomalies are Bactril. Uh, Bactril stands for V for vertebral anomalies, uh, A for anorectal malformation, C for cardiac, um, R for renal anomalies, um, E for ear anomaly, and L for limb abnormalities. So the next question is, what are the key steps in management of this condition? So the key steps is going by ABC. And the most important thing is to keep this baby MBO because most of the cases could be like in postnatal war. So we need to admit to NICU, keep MBO, give IV fluid, and investigate for the associated anomalies doing like um, spinal or abdominal X-ray to see if there is any anomalies and echocardiography if we need to rule out cardiac abnormalities. And um, we need urea and electrolyte because we are giving fluid. We need to be sure that the baby is safe to go for to theater. And of course, discuss with the surgical team as soon as possible. Okay, okay good, good. Yes, you are absolutely right. It's called erectile malformation. This is, this is the acceptable term because it's a spectrum of disease. Well, you can see in this baby that there is no bottom hole. And you can see meconium coming from between the scrotum and then along the median raphe. And the other things to comment on it, the buttocks are well developed and that will give you a bit of idea. You can feel for the spine itself. And the incidence, as you correctly said, is one in 5,000. This is a spectrum of disease. The most common anomaly in boys is what we call rectourethral fistula. So the imperforate NS as such is not an accurate term because these rarely imperforate. They usually perforate somewhere, yeah? So they communicate with the renal tract in boys. And in girls, the most common variant is what we call rectovestibular fistula, where you have a urethral opening, you have a vaginal opening, and then at the joint of the foreshead, here at the vestibule, usually that the opening is rectovestibular. Normally the opening should be beyond the uh, foreshade, then there is a perineal body, so there's a gap, and then you have an anal opening. So if it's not in the correct place, it usually tends to be more anterior. It's, it's never posterior, it's never more behind. It's always more to the front rather than, and there is a wrong term which people call anterior ectopic anus, which is in strict terms, is not an anterior ectopic anus, it's a perineal fistula like this one. This is, this is a perineal fistula as well, because we expect this to be communicating somewhere under the skin. So probably there's a track from here going to there is opening here. Uh, because strictly, an anterior topic anus is not an anus. An anus, it means it has to have a sphincter mechanism all the way around it, and it needs to have normal uh, anus anatomically as well. So these are the fistulas, and they don't have a sphincter all the way around it. Um, the key things, okay, as, as you said, so the different types of anorectal, I didn't want to put so many pictures of them, but the classic ones, anal stenosis is associated with a triad called Kiririno triad. I don't know whether you've heard of this condition where you have an anal stenosis, spinal anomaly, and you have a presacral mass, which from an oncological point, it could be a teratoma. Uh, or it could be a duplication of the hindgut, or it could be an anterior myelomeningocele or anything along those lines. 
and there is a familial condition and we have families over the Kurerino triad. You can have rectal atresia. Rectal atresia, you have a normal... So rectal atresia is where you have a normal looking anus, but if you put a thermometer or put a catheter, or put something through it, it will stop. So there is an atresia beyond it. So these are normal. This has a favorable outcome because you have a normal sphincter, normal anus, you do a covering stoma first, and you go and resect that bit and join them again. They do very well. Similar rectoperineal fistula, like the, like the ones we just shown, that's a rectoperineal fistula. Imperforate anus without a fistula, these are rare, and maybe account for about 5%. And classically, these are seen in children with Down syndrome. So when you see a Down syndrome, you expect to be an imperforate anus without fistula. But the classic one in the male will be a rectourethral fistula, which could be a bulbar, which is close to the end, prosthetic, which is more behind, or rectobladder neck. The higher it is, the fistula, it means it's unfavorable. Unfavorable in the sense that continence long-term might not be great. So the, the closer it to where it belongs, then it is favorable in the sense that the surgery is easier and the prognosis and long-term continence is okay. Those patients who don't have a good muscle tone, good nerves to the, to the rectum, we can make them socially continent by bowel management. Not necessarily means making stoma, but bowel irrigation, laxative, whatever, but we can make them socially continent. In the girls, anal stenosis, rectoritis is similar, rectoperineal fistula, and without a fistula, that's again the downs, and vestibular fistula. Vestibular is the common one. And then the conveca, which is the extreme form, where the back passage, the anus, the vagina and the urethra all open into one. Yeah, so Kulweka means sewer in Latin. And this is, this is an extreme form. This needs a lot of reconstructive surgery. These, um, the continence can be a bit of an issue. And those can have anomalous Mullerian system, like the genital tract as well. And these generally long-term, they're recommended to deliver by section. They don't deliver vaginally because the perineal body and the area is not strong enough to tolerate normal delivery. So that's the incidence. And we talked about those, we talked about the downs. And it's very important for, for the pediatrician and neonatologist in particular, neonatal SHOs who go and do baby checks to examine the baby properly. You, sometimes you open the nap and you find meconium there. You say, oh, it's fine, pass meconium is okay. What you need to do, you need to wipe the meconium away and examine the baby exactly and see where the opening is. Because they might have a perineal fistula. And I've seen this many times. Children come weeks of age with huge mega rectum and they've been missed. The vector, let me just correct you. You were, you were right, but there was just, uh, so it's a vertebral, anorectal, cardiac, tracheosophageal, the American way, renal, and limb anomalies. Yeah, it's not ear. I think you're confused with charge. Charge the word has the ear, the coloboma and the, and the mental retardation and the, and the renal and the genital anomalies and ear anomalies. And D, some people believe we should put a D as well, which is the duodenal atresia. And there's another group which call them Argus. Argus mainly for the anorectal, which is anorectal genitourinary sacral anomalies. And Argus is, a, is apparently a Greek god, which has got 100 eyes. So it means you have to be vigilant and look for these anomalies. Because in the renal tract, the renal tract anomalies 
reflux. And if there's high grade reflux and you miss it, you end up with end stage renal disease because you overlooked it, that would be a shame as well. So you have to physically look for those. You don't have to do scan of the spine and kidney on day one, but you can do them after the reconstruction, but before the child is discharged. If the child is discharged, you haven't done the spinal anomalies and they pass the three months of age, you have to do an MRI scan because the bone will be ossified. So it's crucial you do the scans ideally before discharge, otherwise you miss the boat. Initially, when you're not sure what's going on with the child, whether they have a fistula or not, you can examine the urine and look for meconium for it. I had a picture, I didn't put it, for a child who has passing meconium per urethrum. And then you do the imaging. How do you prepare the child for theater? You rule out those anomalies, major cardiac anomalies, things that influence anesthesia and initial management. And then you need to know, is this a high anomaly or a low anomaly? Those retourethral fistulas are high anomalies. They're not perineal. You cannot do small operations through the bottom to make an endoplasty. You need to do a covering stoma first. And then you do distal colostograms, define the anatomy and come back with a roadmap do the definitive reconstructive surgery, and then at the third stage, you close the stoma. If in doubt, it's always safe to make a stoma. You don't want to go poking in the perineum and causing damage on the assumption that it's a low and then you discover it's a high anomaly. Yeah? So it's, nobody will blame you if you do a stoma and the stoma is generally the safest option. Especially if even erective vestibular fistula where it is one of those where some surgeons, they feel very brave and decide finally they're gonna do definitive surgery now or something. If this ends up with a wound breakdown and sepsis in the pelvis, you've changed a very favorable outcome for a baby to a completely unfavorable. And, and as the original surgeon who described this operation called Alberto Peña, who comes originally from Mexico and works in America, he says, if you think this is too much of a risk for your own child, don't do it for other people's children, yeah? So don't do anything, don't experiment on people's kids. Do what you feel is safe and what it would be appropriate for your own children to receive. Okay then. Thank you very much, Mr. Khalid. Uh, this was uh, really fruitful and uh, enormously useful. Uh, uh, Mr. Dr. Samali and Rehab are uh, introducing him a summarized closure, Osama. Dr. Osama, Ali, and uh, or Dr. Rehab. Sorry, I was muted. I didn't realize. Sorry, sorry, everyone. Uh, I was saying thank you, Mr. Mr. Farid, uh, and I said that this is this is really, 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 very um, good talk, very interesting and very informative talk, and lots of pediatric uh, surgical problems being kind of discussed and uh, in uh, uh, very in a very nice way, um, as well as with the case group and the discussion. Um, so we. Um, Unfortunately, the time is only two hours, so we couldn't expand more because we I thought we can stay um, hours and hours listening um, to you and getting lots of uh, lots of information. 
And so thank you, thank you very much. And I have just few things to say uh, to everyone who's here. Thank you for your patience. Thank you for being with us and, and participating as well in the uh, discussion. Uh, I hope this is um, very useful to you. Uh, so a few things, um, we'd like you to fill out the feedback form that we have uh, dropped in the, in the chat box. Um, uh, it is linked to the certificate. So the, this is a CBD approved um, uh, activity. You will get your certificate in one to two uh, weeks time. And what you need to do is you need to fill the feedback form because the feedback form is one of the is an assessment um, as well uh, for, for the uh, usefulness of this activity. Um, I have a few announcements to make uh, from for the association. That's, uh, we have upcoming events. Uh, they, we've uh, conducted the interview workshop. Uh, and uh, so we will have the mock interview uh, for those who are being shortlisted to SD3, SD4 applicants. And this is going to be on the 19th of uh, March, 2022. And I think uh, you've received an email regarding uh, to that. So visit our, our website for the, for the registration. Um, um, to be accepted in this mock interview, you have to be shortlisted for the ST3, ST, ST4. And then we have a few uh, projects um, as well. Let's visit our website for more details. It's a Keep Me Safe uh, uh, project, which we are conducting in uh, Soba Hospital in July. Uh, that's where we will do some educational um, um, workshop for um, pediatric intensive care uh, staff, the medical officers and the nurses, which is going to be run in, in Sudan and Soba Hospital on the B5CH. Um, as well, we have the Bravo Award, uh, which will you will get more information about it, but it's, uh, it is an award from the B5CH for uh, those who have best papers presented in the RCBCH conference and in the uh, other international conferences. So uh, we would, uh, you would get more information about that. And um, um, so keep tuned to uh, get the information and to uh, submit your, for us your um, application for this, for this award. Um, visit our website, bcfch.co.uk uh, for all of this information and as well for recordings of the previous webinars. Unfortunately, this webinar, this um, workshop is not going to be uh, available in our YouTube channel or in the uh, website because of um, some issues related to consent of those uh, of the media materials that uh, are in it. Um, so um, as well, <clears throat> visit our website uh, and go to the membership page uh, to apply for membership and be a member of the BSAPCH Association so you uh, can avail as well. Um, the exclusive workshop for uh, for the BSAPCH um, uh, members. Um, thank you again for attending this um, uh, third uh, series of the pediatric uh, emergency series. Um, we have a couple of pediatric emergency series uh, going to be conducted next, one about endocrine emergencies and one about uh, the ultrasound uh, use for the pediatric um, uh, radiology and ultrasound use for the in the pediatric emergencies. Uh, so stay tuned as well for for these upcoming events. As well, we have um, other um, social um, program in Clubhouse. So uh, we will announce it for it later. But basically, it's uh, it's um, interactive talks with uh, parents and with um, those who work with the <clears throat> pediatric neurodisability in Sudan and the um, the 
development and delay or just maybe HD uh, just going to discuss all of these uh, all of these topics um, and uh, talk about it uh, so thank you very much again Mr. Khalid Malik thank you all the uh, moderators uh, being with us in here for your patience for your excellent um, uh, moderation Buran uh, in the main room Rehab Khalid uh, Sami and Mona in the uh, break room. Thank you, uh, Dr. Rehab, for um, organizing and working as well in the background for peace. Uh, we apologize for all technical difficulties um, during peace in the break rooms. Um, and um, we uh, would like to thank you all the attendants. We have had more than 130, 140 uh, attendants for peace. You are going to get your certificate in one to two weeks' time. We'll send you an email for the participants uh, uh, with link to the um, uh, feedback form as well. We dropped it in the chat box in here. Um, and again, thank you very much, Mr. Khalid, and thank you, thank you, everyone. Uh, we would uh, end uh, now. We hope you enjoyed this episode. Your feedback is important, and we are looking forward to it. Do not forget to subscribe, like, and share the podcast. And finally, have a great day.